0: Our personal health and the health of our planet are inseparable. Join me today for a discussion about the relationship between planetary and human health with former director of the CDC's National Center for Environmental Health and emeritus professor at the Fielding School of Public Health at UCLA, Dr. Richard Jackson. Keep listening to find out how, by protecting the health of children and the most vulnerable, we can protect health for all. Well, welcome Dr. Dick Jackson. It's such a pleasure to have you on our podcast today and I've been looking forward to it for years, actually, ever since I heard you speak in the horseshoe room when you were the (laughs) medical state officer for Governor Schwarzenegger. And you just wowed me at that point and ever since uh, has continued to do that. And I was fortunate to then become one of your colleagues when you move to UCLA. So one of the things that really strikes me about you and your ability to translate science to the layperson is how you can decipher science and understand it and really translate it for all of us that might not be as well versed. And one of the areas that you're really incredibly focused on now and have been is the human health and its interrelationship to planet health. And before we get into this conversation and how you got into that and also focused on children, I wanna know what drew you to the field of medicine and what drew you also to the focus of children and environmental health. Wendy, I,
1: I got public health merit badge as a Boy Scout, but I really did not know that my career was going to be like this. My dad had been a fighter pilot during World War II survived the South Pacific. Half his squadron was dead afterwards. He goes home, marries, has three little kids. And at age 27, this fellow that survived the war developed polio and died, leaving my mom with three little babies. And you know uh, what did I know? I was a little kid, but it really transformed my life. It wasn't even conscious. I needed to work on things that were important. There were so many things that seemed silly to me. And this one, was seeing my mother suffering, seeing the Basically, we were put in poverty for years because of it. What went through, and so when I was in my teens and looking at what to do with my life, I didn't really know any doctor in my life. I didn't know any scientist. I didn't know anybody with power. And I just decided, well, I'm good at science. I'll, I think I'll apply for medical school. And I was lucky enough uh, to go to UCSF, even though I grew up in North, New Jersey, and pediatrics really drew me. And it wasn't until much later in life I realized that I was trying to redo my own childhood by doing the pediatrics. And then, of course, I picked infectious disease and worked on smallpox eradication. But because I grew up in Jersey, the issue of the environment was not tangential. It really was salient. It was palpable in my life. And I I won't go on and on, but my mother lived in a town where the women who had been painting radium dials, and she had seen women with their jaws rotted off from doing this. And the fact that the environment could really do tremendous harm to people, and of course, polio was an environmental disease in its own way. Mm-hmm. And so um, while I was at CDC doing infectious disease work, I evolved more and more into the toxics arena, which was pretty much brand new back then in the early 70s. And by then, I had become a pediatrician. The idea that children were different, and we needed to recalibrate the entire regulatory system to protect children, it was novel. It was seen as crazy. Because, by the way, all the regulations were set on the basis of a a grown man sitting on the couch and not rolling on the floor naked. And it just made no sense to be setting standards on the basis of the least vulnerable. In fact, when we should be setting environmental standards, pesticides, air pollution, chemicals, on the basis of the most vulnerable. And by the way, if we do that, we protect everyone. So that was really what got me into the career. In the beginning, I couldn't figure out how pediatrics and environmental health related very well, but it really became part of my DNA over time.
0: What you're just describing really reflects something that is one of your many strengths, which is that you're a strong observer of environmental health impacts in communities. I want to understand from your pediatric training, what led you to some of those early on observations, like, for instance, lead toxicity, which I've heard you tell in the past. I
1: I had a chance to do a rotation in New York City, and I remember going on the ward and being shocked. I was just a first-year med student, and seeing 20 or so very young children running around, hyperactive as could be. And I said to the attendant, they look fine. Why are they they here? And he said, oh, they're being chelated for lead poisoning. They're having the lead atoms being removed from their body along with other divalent cations like iron and calcium and other important things. And he took me to the back room down the ward. And here was a baby probably about two years old in coma and seizing. And eventually that baby died with elevated lead poisoning. And the the reality of environmental harm to people was real to me. And it was a mismatch between my training because and I think everyone's training because what you were seeing in the lab and histology and pathology was often so narrow. And yet what was causing these problems was really the system, the ecology that a human being was growing up in, and not just the physical and toxicologic ecology and and environmental, but the social ecology as well. And yet nothing in my training really prepared me for thinking about the fact that, you know, the poisoning was due to bad paint and bad food and bad water, but it was also due to bad social policies. And so after my pediatric training, I went to work on pesticides, which sounds very narrow and remote, but I ended up loving it. And I'll just tell you, it was more interesting than pharmacology, which is which I always loved in part because the complexity of it and the exposures were so profound. I would go out and do investigations of farm worker poisonings where a hundred workers would be in the field vomiting and blurred vision and sick as could be. And there'd always be five or eight pregnant women in the group. And there would always be three or four kids. And in some crops that where it's piecework, there are even more children. And over and over again, the, both the toxicologic issues, but then the social issues, that you couldn't disconnect them. They were so profound. And of course, the people were afraid to say anything because many of them were undocumented. So a whole new world, and maybe there's some advice for the young people, which is when you go deep on an issue... You actually learn that everything is connected to everything else, and it's overwhelming sometimes. You have to sort of figure out, how can I focus and be narrow on a solution? And maybe if you'd like to talk about it, I'll tell you about thinking about some of those solutions.
0: Yeah, well, you even experienced it yourself, as you said earlier, with your own childhood. When your dad passed away, it suddenly drove your family to poverty. That was a social outcome to a disease that now, fortunately, is preventable. But that's what we're experiencing, too. Many families are experiencing that with COVID. There's a letter that you wrote in 2007 to the really well-respected journal Science, where you describe the uniqueness of children's health related to public health and policy, and how focusing on children can also give us clues on how to improve our physical environment like more sidewalks so they can walk safely to school. Why do you think that these topics at that point, which many people thought of as revolutionary, why do you think that's so revolutionary to think about the built environment and its relationship to health through the lens of children?
1: I love this question. You know, I went to CDC. I was originally there as a young EIS officer. I went back to CDC in the year 1994 and became head of environmental health for the United States of America. And we were up to our ears in toxic things, including uh, chemical weapon destruction and cruise ships uh, docking on the United States. This is my center's work. But we were also measuring chemicals in people. And that interest came out of the work on, we called it biomonitoring, the work on, for example, the farm workers, because they would go in and they'd be sick as could be. And the defendants' lawyers would say, oh, you can't prove they're chemically exposed. And we didn't have a way to measuring what was in the urine or the blood or the person. And so thanks to CDC's spectacular laboratories and, and the help of members of Congress, including Nancy Pelosi, were able to get the appropriations to put in place a, a powerful lab to biomonitor the US population, about 5,000 people a year sample. But then it gave us, here's the normal standards, and this is what would be well above, should be, by the way, one of the chemicals we were looking at was phthalates. These were the softening chemicals that are used in plastics. And I remember learning that baby pacifiers were 50% phthalates. Wow. And you know, you know a baby sitting there chewing it. And these chemicals are weak estrogens, weak carcinogens, but you don't want to be immersed in them constantly. And here's a baby being exposed. By the way, some of the bottles were made of this and on and on and on. So but where I was going was that getting the policy in place to really respond to that was Ah, uh, very, very difficult. And often one had to reach out to advocacy groups because I can condemn the use of this publicly, but political backlash was really pretty powerful. The political and adversarial process around chemicals is extremely difficult. It was crosswise with one of the chemical companies who literally had private detective company going after me, and we had to have the state police go and do a scan of my office to make sure there weren't bugs of so, the certain thing as a government employee then so, Living in Atlanta, I became aware, and everybody in Los Angeles understands this, that the hardest part of your life is your commute for many people. And my kids were in three different schools, uh, all in different directions. The high school did not have a sidewalk within six blocks of it. And over and over again, I kept thinking, you know, I'm worried about atoms and lead and molecules of phthalates and polar bears and the ice caps. But where people live is hugely important. And I know that sounds radical, but fundamental start of public health in 1870s, 1880s, 90s was where people lived, that people needed decent housing. The, the greening of spaces was so important, but also creating both recreation and social outlets, but also transportation outlets so people are not held hostage to very expensive automobiles.
0: You really translated that observation to our own campus, leading the Semel Healthy Campus Initiative Be Well pod and. In- really promoted active transport based in science which was so useful right what is it 10 pounds a year you'll drop or the first year anyway if you adopt active transport which really facilitated people's ability to sort of try it out and and keep it going so again i think for the listeners who are trying to figure out how to make a difference or be innovative really observing your own environment can really enhance and give you ideas for actually research or even working on policies like you have?
1: You know, Wendy, you'll trigger a couple of thoughts here. But one is uh, when I was there at the university, I would go across the street to my dentist's office, who was on the fourth floor of the building there. And I would say to the guard, "Uh, I want to take the stairs. One flight of stairs a day for a year is one pound of body fat that I can burn off. And I I always would take the stairs. And he said, well, you can't. So finally he agreed. He took me outside and I went around the building and to this dark, rather scary door and opened the door and here's the exit stairway. I went up and by the way, I still couldn't get into the fourth floor. So I had to go back down again, but even something as simple as depriving people of that essential physical activity. And it's actually good for us in terms of balance and leg strength and all the rest back to being able to bicycle or walk to campus. We have two hospitals, as you know, one in Santa Monica and one Ronald Reagan on the campus itself. There needs to be a bike route between those two. I remember the pediatric residents saying to me, you know, it takes me 45 minutes to take a bus or a car over to campus from where I live. If there were a bike route there, I could bicycle in about 20 to 25 minutes. And by the way, I would not need to go to the gym then. And I'd be more reliably on time because you can't be on, you can't be late if you have a shift and the folks who are exhausted need to go home. So even something as simple as that, to much more complex issues like and ucla has done an, a wonderful job and renee fortier the just now retired head of transportation and events working to really improve public transportation uh, to de-emphasize the importance of parking structures and cars and one that was very important to me as a pediatrician is 20 is plenty and the partner on that was also the ucla police department and who we're very much in favor of reducing speed on campus. There's no reason you need to go across a 250 acre campus at speeds bigger than 20 miles an hour. And you know better than I, if a child's hit by a car going 20 miles an hour, you know, it is a big risk, but it's not, it's 10 times the risk if they're going 40 miles an hour the vehicle is. So over and over again, by using the health lens to look at the campus, and you were very important on this leadership, look at the health lens, to look at food, and Jane Semmel was the same, to look at uh, habitation and housing, to look at transportation and walking, and ultimately the very important, the social connectedness. Where are the spaces that people can come together, feel safe, and be together? And By the way, UCLA is so rich in terms of art and music and other things that make life enjoyable and worth living, and creating those spaces is not tangential to human health it is essential to human
0: health right on i'm totally with you as as we all work to strive to make a healthier place you're stitching together a theme that has evolved into something that you have had incredible impact on at a national level advocating the national academy of sciences to focus on health and climate together because what is better for our physical health is also better for planet health right So I'd love to hear your journey in that, trying to really convince this highly esteemed group, National Academy of Sciences and their members, because again, here you are at the forefront trying to really have a titanic shift, really.
1: One is, you know, to go from infectious disease to pediatrics, to environmental health, to more distant stuff, over time, it became clear that the biggest threat to my children and my grandchildren and to everyone's grandchildren is going to be climate heating. I actually avoid using the term climate change if I can, because this heating is having such profound effects. And just a couple of days ago from when we were recording this, the international agency looking at climate change came out and said, this is this is a line we were using for 10 years now in pediatrics. This is code blue. It's something you can no longer ignore. You have got to jump on very, very fast. And I think time for dithering is over. Getting the National Academy of Medicine, and it's a little obscure to people, but there are three elements within the National Academy of Sciences. One is the National Academy of Sciences, which are really the more classic technical scientists, if you will. And they've been talking about these issues of bioengineering and reducing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere by putting reflectors in the outer atmosphere and on and on and on, reducing uh, heat of the planet. Engineers, National Academy of Engineering, think a lot about and for example, desalination because of the changing water patterns and the horrific drought that we are facing in the West and the fires, thinking about engineering solutions. But medicine, in a way, and this is paradigmatic for all the things we're doing, medicine is the integration of all these elements. We see the results of what the engineers and the scientists, et cetera, do in medicine. That child is the, the epitome of what we need to be protecting. But frankly, medicine has been slow in grasping just because we docs are very good at dealing with the patient in front of us. You know, and I always say that internist looks at a snapshot of the person and what do I do right now to get them through the hypertensive episode or something else. In pediatrics, we have to think about the whole trajectory of that child's life. And what are we doing now that will affect we use various terms like anticipatory guidance to really make the parents really focus forward. And you'll get through it because raising young children is hard work and helping them cope with that. And my problem with the National Academy of Medicine was most of the physicians are so loaded up with work, you know, 20, 30 patients a day, and a lot of them, the young ones have huge amounts of debt from school and and their own personal life demands That getting them to think about something that far away and remote when they're looking at real-life problems right in their face all the time was, was very hard. Two allies that I found in that were, in general, very young physicians who were extremely concerned about this and very frustrated there was no career path for them. You know, if they wanted to study some narrow bit of the clotting cycle, they could find NIH funding to do that. But if they wanted to look at the threat to humanity that might cost half a billion lives, there was no funding or support to do that. The other group of physicians were very supportive for the older ones, and if you will, grandparents. You know, they're at the point in their career, they kind of know a lot of the medical side, but they're really looking forward about what's going to happen to my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren. And so getting the National Academy of Medicine to embrace this. And I literally, a friend of mine said, why are you focusing on doctors when, you know, climate's this other set of issues? And I said, well, the medical care system is 17% of all the money in the United States. It's about 10% of all the workforce in the United States, about 10% of all the climate emissions. And it seems so high, but when you think about the manufacture of all those materials and transport and et cetera, that's where it is. And we cannot in medicine tell people, you need to clean up your act if we're not working on our own. And the same is true for the United States. We can't tell other countries emit less carbon dioxide and do less deforestation unless we do the same things. And you know this. pediatrics. You can't tell people to be healthy if you're sitting there smoking a cigarette. We have got to be a model as well. And that's not always easy, of course, but we've got to be a model as well as a a lecturer, a teacher. And the other part of medicine, by the way, this is very rich for me, is we have to be with people. It's not arm's length. And and when people are suffering, sometimes all we can offer them is our presence.
0: What you just said is so right on in terms of having a finger on the pulse to the community is really important for people who are creating policies or research. And your capacity to do that in so many parts of your life is transformative, not just for our immediate community, but nationally. And I know you've just become a grandparent or two, and has that given you a different perspective?
1: Well, I didn't have daughters. So um, I have to admit that my granddaughters completely enchant me. It would go years without one of my sons running up and giving me a hug, but the little girls do it all the time. So um, the heart melts very easily. and, And when you're the parent, you are protective of your children, but you're so overwhelmed with the demands and the hour to hour and how do I deal with this and get them back and forth. But as a grandparent, you have time to really enjoy the it's such a gift to enjoy the experience of watching this person uh, evolve and develop, and, and to have a dream in one's eye, and then a year later have a pretty, quite functional human being. It, it's humbling, but that vulnerability—you know—throughout human evolution, species died, people died, families died. If you didn't take care of your children, and fertility was seen as a tremendous gift, and children were seen as incredibly precious. And we've made it so hard in our society to be young parents. And it's one of the reasons I hope that uh, as the infrastructure and other bills go through, we think about ways to make it, we're never going to make it much easier, but at least make it easier for people, particularly poor people and those without enough resources to care for and raise their children, educate their children, feed them for that matter. And so i just say this because I've been thinking a lot about it. I, I think too much in America, we see Things as a zero sum game. So if that person's doing better, I'm doing worse. And it's underneath a lot of the tensions we're having uh, culturally and other ways. And yet the whole American tradition was that love is not a pie. Our society's not a pie. If you get more, I get less. No, it was always if we did it right, everybody do better. And we've kind of begun to forget that, or I believe we've forgotten it. And it's antithetical, not just to children's health, but to the society's well-being and happiness, really.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really agree with you that all of us are interconnected and it's just the same as what you said. The solution to many of these challenges are that we need to interconnect our disciplines and put our heads together. And I so agree that children are vulnerable and also resilient. And there are other groups as well that are more vulnerable. I'd like to know how does environmental health and safety and climate health relate to racial and economic inequities?
1: It is very difficult to start out life with very little resources, being able to explore your environment in a safe way. And what many portions of our population, particularly the African-American population, has been marginalized, They had no ability, many of them, to build capital in the family. It's, you know, if you're born and you have a bit of money to pay for college, pay for your education and get some property and get a leg up in the world, it's so much easier. And yet generation after generation of African-Americans lost their farms, lost their homes, had great difficulty in getting started. So putting people behind right from the very beginning and then figure, oh, well, they're behind because it's their own fault. They didn't work hard enough. They didn't get themselves educated so there, it becomes an inculcated prejudice into a society that we don't even know we're aware of. I remember, I'll just say it outright, when I was at CDC, we got our first woman director at CDC, Julie Garberding, who I admired very much. And one of the pieces of education was that, oh, you know, we didn't see enough from a woman's standpoint. When Dr. Satcher came in, African-American gentleman, he raised our consciousness. Of you have to have shared leadership and for that matter, shared power. Because if you got ten white men sitting at a table making a decision, they miss entire aspects of what they're looking at. Yes, it needs to be women. Yes, it needs to be people of color and people uh, and people who came out of poverty at the same time. And so I think opening up and it will happen one way or another. It's pleasantly or unpleasantly, but it's gonna it's going to happen. At the beginning of my class, I taught one on built environment and health three times a year at UCLA for about ten years. I would have the students after the first class go to the windows and look down on Charles uh, Young Roadway there, out the window, and I would tell them, now, I want you to say what I just said. Look out the window and yell, just because it is this way doesn't mean it has to be this way. And they would yell that out. I said, "Okay, they didn't didn't hear it over the medical school. Yell it out again. They would yell it out again. But where I'm going with that is the idea that what you were handed is what you have to live with is wrong. Yeah, we've got to live with the planet we've got, but sharing the resources the planet has is something we have to do. And that's not just in the U.S. or Los Angeles, that's globally.
0: Thank you for making those insightful comments about the inequities that we're facing and also some solutions. And I'm hopeful that we are moving forward in a meaningful way, certainly at UCLA and the UCs and California. I'd like to focus now on Los Angeles and the sprawling car-centric city that it is. And in 2019, there were more than 150,000 people in LA County spending three hours traveling to and from work. And in a recent report from CityLab called My Commute is Hell, 43% of respondents commuted over 60 minutes to campus each way. How did LA come to be like this? And what are your suggestions on how we can move away from this kind of car-centric society?
1: A hundred years ago in Los Angeles, you could take the red line from Santa Monica Beach to downtown Los Angeles on the trolley car. and It would take about an hour. Now you can have the most expensive Lamborghini you can imagine and drive there, and it will take about an hour. And there are many drivers for this, one of which is our real estate practices are crazy. We, if you will, legislate against um, high density. We make it very hard to put density in place. You can't have a city without density. That's part of the energy and liveliness of a city. You can't have a city without subways because you can't have everybody above ground in 3,000 pounds of steel trying to get around. And Los Angeles has made very good investments with Measure R, Measure M on the subway system. Uh, sidebar with R- Renee and UCLA have been working hard to get this subway stop for the line that will come down from Van Nuys and eventually to the airport, to have that on our campus, wouldn't that be wonderful, both for UCLA, our students and our faculty, would help our recruiting for, for everybody as well. And getting to the airport, we all know that Dante, when he was thinking of the Rings of Hell, was really thinking about LAX at the time. But there are many things that we could do to make it easier. One is, I think COVID's taught us a lesson that we could do a lot more of our work remotely. We don't have to travel all the time. And I think we're never going to go back to the way it was. Two is, parts of Los Angeles are desperately under part. And if you look at the maps of where the most challenging levels of poverty the most challenging levels of obesity and other chronic diseases are, they're also the areas with the least amount of parks. And green space does make life easier. So I became obsessed with the Los Angeles River. Uh, the LA River was one of the reasons the city was founded here. And 54 miles or so of concrete sluice now, um, and it was put in, under concrete because of floods back in the 20s and 30s, that needs to be opened up. There needs to be green space. There ought to be bike routes on both sides. So if you're living in that poor area and you, need it, you have a job downtown LA, you could actually bike there. And by the way, you could look at water along the way. It would be cooler. There'd be wildlife along the way. And the, and the more people that are on it, the safer it is. And people worry, I don't want to be out there alone. Well, remember when you were a girl in New York City, you didn't want to be on the subway alone at certain times. And it wasn't until the subways were more and more people were on them and, and they were really being cleaned up and policed, that you felt perfectly safe. In a way, a subway is a, an analogy to the LA River. There are different kinds of ways people move, and LA is facing horrific drought. When you look at what's left in the Colorado River, it, this is coming with a vengeance and wasting water in Los Angeles, just flushing it down those concrete sluices into the ocean makes no sense whatsoever. It's a big expense, but we can do it. So, those would be a couple of ones. But people that use public transportation way less are more active and Sitting in a car raises your cholesterol, raises your adrenaline level, raises your blood pressure, raises your risk short term of a heart attack. There's so many things we could do to improve physical activity, both socialization instead of what we do now, which is how do we optimize the return on investment? And so we just plop another hundred homes on a, an old cotton field out in the Inland Empire and think that, um, you know, we've really created enough housing Well, from Riverside to downtown L.A., it's now a nightmare.
0: You know, it just shows the interconnectivity once again of your health and well-being with climate health. And everyone has a chance to choose, right? They have a chance to choose what they eat so they could eat less ruminant meat. Just removing one ruminant meal a week, if all of us did that in the United States, we could reduce the climate change by 30% of the Paris Agreement just by that alone. I mean, that's phenomenal. Just an individual's choice. And for you, what you're saying with the active transport, same idea. And I know that the transportation folks did a study during COVID that found that there was a reduced carbon emission significantly from less commuting to UCLA campus. So it is something that was a natural experiment, so to speak, but it really did speak to what you're saying. I'm wondering how active transport integrates with children and their capacity for autonomy and also to contribute to planet health. How would you like to engage children in this messaging? Because as we all know, children really propelled the environmental message decades ago to their parents. You
1: know, children have been such you know a leader, really. It was children that said, mom, grandma, stop smoking. I don't want you to do that. And it really had an influence. The same was true for recycling. The same is true for seatbelts. We started that with the children. And, you know, they grew up and said, I'm not going to ride around in the car without a seatbelt on. And so children are often the leaders. And one of the things about built environment, we have a line that is, built environment is social policy in concrete. Hmm. What I'm going with that is concrete lasts a good hundred years or more. And we have... It, we've got to have a long view. We're not going to fix the challenges of Los Angeles, even UCLA, you know, in a short term. We've got to have a long view about creating a healthy place for everyone. And in a way, the needs of children are not dissimilar to the needs of the elderly and the, those with disabilities. You know? They can't drive, and those who are poor. And so making a car- and driving-oriented environment really puts them at disadvantages. Because the smartest people I knew were the priests, and I grew up very Catholic, I joined the Jesuits for a while. I was in the novitiate. And you're in silence a lot of the time and thinking about what's really important in life and getting to know yourself and the peer group that you're in. And I'm really struck that so much of what we're talking about is moral as well as it is medical, technical, ethical. And I fear that we are so focused on short-term wealth. A lot of the housing has come out of just turning vacant land, putting cheap houses on it, making a huge amount of money doing that. By the way, a lot of it was the best farmland in the world that we did that to. And being excessively focused on short-term return on investments, whether you're running a hospital system or something else, real estate does more harm than good. And I think having this long view of what's best for the population and what's best for children, and for that matter, those who are most vulnerable, is really the way to bring back America to what it should be.
0: And I think it's something that we all should be aspiring to. And I think, like you said, the next generation of physicians and leaders and students, that's why it's such a privilege to work at UCLA and really support the education of these incredibly talented people to come out to the world and really help transform us to a healthier place. And like you said, it, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. So we have to all have patience as well. You reminded me of when I first met you with that last saying you said about how you have such a way with words and and can really encapsulate ideas in a couple of words or a sentence. I was giving a talk a couple of years ago and I emailed you to ask you for a few sayings that you could. <laughs> Share with me that I could put on some slides. And some of my favorite, I just have to say them right now because I think some of them are very valuable for the listeners to hear, like this one. If you're not making a few mistakes, you're probably not trying enough new methods to change the mobility paradigm. And another one, measure success at creating change, but don't be dismayed if progress is incremental. It took decades to become car centric, so moving to people centric mobility won't happen overnight. Those are very wise phrases and sentences for all of us to hear.
1: I really want to thank Jane Semmel, to thank you, to thank the Chancellor for the wonderful work that the Healthy Campus Initiative has done. And I was the lead with Renee on the built environment, but kept learning from the psychology and psychiatry people a lot of things I was. I'm talking about, were well, really about mind well, or about a healthy mind. And move well, and I love the, the fact that people in move well was also about dance, it was about breathe well, and so many of them really were integrated into a vision of a UCLA that I believe is one of the happiest campuses in the United States that is most progressive. It's reflected in the enormous numbers of applicants, and I feel bad that it, recruiting can be so difficult because of housing and transportation issues here. What has happened with the campus under your leadership, I want to see that go out and affect and, frankly, infect the rest of Los Angeles and California and the country to create health in a broad domain, not simply medical, you know, medicines and this sort of thing, but culture of health. And I think the Healthy Campus effort has been so important in that.
0: Well, thank you, Dr. Dick Jackson. That makes my day and my week to hear that from you, especially. Thank you again. Dr. Dick Jackson, what a pleasure, and look forward to our next conversation.
1: Love to be with you. Take care.
0: Thank you again for joining us. For more information about today's episode, visit our website at healthy.ucla.edu livewellpodcasts. Today's podcast was brought to you by the Semel Healthy Campus Initiative Center at UCLA. To stay up to date with our episodes, subscribe to UCLA Live Well on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us a rating to tell us how we are doing. And if you think you know the perfect person for us to interview next, please tweet your idea to us at Healthy UCLA. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And we hope you join us for our next episode as we explore new perspectives on health and well being.